0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering three conversations from episode 58, the beginning of our year-end wrap-up with Jorn, Louise, and me. Plus, from our vault, two conversations from season three, episode 20. Jorn's first episode as co host This conversation, the first half of episode 20 from back in April, has some similarities to this week's conversation. The podcast is only the three of us, Louise Campbell, Jorn Schottenberg, and me. And Louise is in Australia. The conversation starts with me welcoming Jorn to the podcast, in his new role as co-host. And mentioning that since we now have a German co-host, I've had to learn the German holiday schedule along with the U.S. and U.K. for recording purposes. After Jorn describes his background and some of his academic research, Louise notes that one thing she enjoys about Jorn's participation in past podcasts is that many of our hepatology guests are comfortable only with the role of the hepatologist and sicker patients. But Jorn's work on pathways and health economics makes him more conversant through the entire healthcare spectrum and range of patient severities. This leads Jorn to note that most of his earlier literature patients are located in primary care practices, which has led him to try working with frontline treaters on clinical screening exercises. He notes that some physicians are easier to persuade and work with than others. That said, the biggest challenge is that they mostly lack the time to pursue liver disease because, as Stephen Harrison would put it, they have limited time to meet them and greet them before they have to treat them. From there, we discuss the value of different kinds of liquid biopsy and other tests in the context of primary care practices, what a test must be to succeed, and where imaging and artificial intelligence will fit in. As the conversation ends, we discuss referral pathways, test utilization, and the value of this podcast in educating treaters. Along with in-person meetings, your joining the podcast was our single biggest change this year. It was fascinating to me to compare where Nashville was when he joined back in April to what we all are thinking just seven months later. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. When you're done, join the conversations in our LinkedIn discussion group. So we're here right now, just the three of us, Louise and Jorn and me, the new three of us. And when Stephen is with us, we'll be the four of us. But I figured since you got to know audience, got to know Louise and me pretty well over the life of the first year and a half, two years of the podcast. And Jorn's been with us a bunch. I didn't do the exact count, but I think it's, it's over 30 episodes at this point, but not every week. Just wanted to take some time for everyone to get to know Jorn a little bit as we do. He was introduced to me by Stephen Harrison as the nicest guy in hepatology. By the way, Ken Cousy was introduced to me as the nicest guy in endocrinology. And I think so far uh, over the last couple of years, you guys have been each holding up your ends of the bargain and also really smart and multidisciplinary. So Jörn, first of all, I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am that you're coming aboard full-time.
1: Jörn Schottenberg, Thanks, Roger. No, I, I, the thrill is on my side, really, because I've been following the podcast for some time and really enjoyed the days uh, that I was able to join you. Most of the time, it's a Monday evening, Monday night, and it's really a highlight in the week. I have it as a fixed block in my calendar now, so I'm very excited
0: to move forward with you guys. So I will tell the audience a funny story, which is one of the things that Jorn joining us on this basis has done is forced me to learn the German holiday calendar. For example, the reason we're recording this week the way we are in part is because Easter Monday is a major holiday in Germany, not in the States, and the major holiday week of the year. So Jorn came aboard this week and then is unavailable all of next week. So we're doing one of our typical Surfing the ash adaptations and we're doing a bunch of interviews with people that we've been wanting to catch up with. But in front of that, as I say, a little a little bit of time with Jorn. So how 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 did you come to hepatology in the
1: first place? Uh, Well, that's a good question. And I have to think some time back because I've been there for some years now. I went to med school after doing the German Abitur, which is the graduation. Actually, I spent part of my high school years in in Montana. I might have said that one or the other podcast previously and that was really a fascinating time. Nothing that really coined me towards med school, but coming out of a family where we do have some physicians, I was used to talking about GI issues over dinner with my father and it kind of coined me towards medicine, I guess. I went to med school in Mainz. Mainz has a fairly big university here, medical program, and trained here both the preclinical which is the equivalent to the college education and the clinical parts, which would be the med school, as you know it in the US. Uh, One of the typical exercises German med students do is to actually write up a doctoral thesis. And that doctoral thesis coined me towards hepatology, I think, because back in the days, I got a new head of the department. He was focused on uh, hepatocellular carcinoma and apoptosis, liver injury mechanisms. I joined the group, started to work at the bench, killing hepatocytes in little plastic dishes. Now we use different conditions to protect them or foster cell death. And that part that in the end resulted in my promotion, promotion, which is the MD degree, kind of coined me towards hepatology. And right after graduating, instead of joining the clinical team and starting residency, I actually went abroad and joined Mark Chaya at Albert Einstein in New York. It's part of the Yeshiva University. And there's a big liver center. It's called Marion Besson Liver Center. Big center at, at times. David Sheffritz, they did a lot of regeneration back then. And I joined the group and, and we started, we got into fatty liver disease then feeding mice, trying to decipher the, you know, the mechanisms of liver injury, just like, as I did in my first days in the lab. And really, this is my start in hepatology and NAFLD, even before doing
0: clinical work. First of all, Louise is with us at midnight in Sydney. Sydney?
2: Louise Campbell. Yeah, I'm still in Sydney.
0: Yeah, midnight in Sydney. She and I are going to alternate questions in part to keep her awake at this hour and in part because she'll have better questions than me. But I just want to make one observation, which is my dinner table, we grew up debating politics, which occasionally was vehement. But I think I probably prefer that as mental image You're talking about GI issues every night while eating. For some reason, I understand why that would take you in the direction it did. I'm just, you know, (laughs) visualizing interesting conversations while eating food. Louise, go ahead. Your question to Professor Schottenberg.
2: That's a very official title. (laughs) No, I... I just love listening to what you bring to the podcast. And I particularly like the angle you bring about sharing with primary care and epidemiology and and bringing it out that way. So is that something you particularly foster or is that something that a lot of your colleagues work with as well?
1: That's a good comment. And I think, you know, as a physician in a tertiary care centre, you tend to think, you know, this I'm at the end, the top of the spectrum. I get the sickest of the sick. We're doing the transplants. And really, there is a big disconnect to primary care. However, working in non-alcoholic, fatty liver disease, I think the majority of my patients actually is with these primary care physicians. And it's actually through the research, the more clinical research. You know, I started out detailing some of the bench work and the mice work I've been doing, but it's the clinical research that really connected me to that patient group because that's where my patients are. And we're doing two or three big screening projects over here. Liver Screen is an EU-funded consortium that actually goes into the primary care physician's office and screens for liver disease there using different technologies. Really, I think that made me become part of a network work here in Mainz where I have a very close relation to a lot of the primary care physicians that start to see or realize the amount of patients they're seeing. And and I think we're in in exchange with them. And it's a very good experience instead of just being isolated in your ivory academic medical center. That's the direction I come from here.
2: So what can we sort of take from that and share? Because we get a lot of resistance in primary care to wanting to locate, to thinking that they don't see liver disease. So therefore it's obviously not there. So were they receptive at the beginning? Were they reticent? Was there a hesitancy about it?
1: Yeah, I think there are easy targets and more difficult targets. Uh, So one colleague I'm working with very closely trained in GI partly, and she was very receptive to this idea. And she's actually handled a trans device herself before going into primary care. And when I approached her and suggested, we are going to use this technology to actually screen in your practice? And she was on fire and, and, and did that right away. The limitations for primary care physicians is there's no allotted time to look for liver disease in their busy schedule. There's at not a, at a single point, maybe outside of how are you? If the patient doesn't says, you know, I think I have liver disease, they won't talk about liver disease again. Our co-surfer, Stephen, would have said that you greet him and street him in a couple of minutes. Uh, there's really no room to assess liver disease. And all the screening programs they have to do or the, the regular maintenance, this is a major obstacle. Now that we're improving diagnostics or potentially even bringing in something like artificial intelligence, and we've discussed this here on the podcast that is run in the background of a medical file that could highlight and flag a patient of suspected liver disease, these type of technologies could be transforming whether primary cares and actually start thinking about liver disease.
0: Yeah, and I'm laughing because as you were starting to describe the lack of time primary care had, the phrase that immediately went through my head was greed and freedom and streetum. So Stephen's impact on how... Well, Stevens, in fact, I know everyone t- deals with him speaks, it's really compelling. But uh, between peek and shriek and greet him, treat him, and street him, you, you, you've certainly taken all that stuff and put it right in front of us. So Alina Allen was the first person, I think, who came on this podcast and specifically said, you know, the best use of AI may well be patient records, exactly what, what you just referred to, which was a surprise, because the question that elicited that was, we expected the answer to be about the work that's being done with histopathology, and her answer was there. In a world where the liquid biopsies are better or better received, how long do you think it will take... Or, or what path do you see and how long might it take to get to a place where, in the German system at least, you can integrate liquid, uh, decent liquid tests and medical records and start doing some of that in the background?
1: Yeah, so the liquid biopsies require some sort of liquid, right? And this is limited in primary care. For the primary care physician to take a blood drop, it takes a good system. At least in Germany, they're not coined to do that. In the NICE system, this is a little different than the setup, but in general, German primary care physicians will not do regular lab tests. Now, this is not true for physicians caring for patients with diabetes, where there are specialized diabetes programs, for example, disease management programs. And there, based on quality criteria and reassurance, blood tests are suggested. I think there are certain programs that are already existing in in the German medical arena or healthcare system that fatty liver disease or liver disease as such should piggyback on and then be addressed. You know, it'll take some time to implement that and you need some political discussion around it because it might be a few additional expenses. But in general, the system is ready to implement that in a high-risk population. Population uh, within those disease management programs for diabetes.
0: So, and when that happens, do you expect that FIB four will be the blood test that comes in? Since is just the one that everyone. One of the things I'm trying to figure out in my mind, and I'm not going to be quick enough to get this right. And I hadn't thought about it before this moment. Is what is the value of a test that's? inefficient in identifying positives in a 70% positive population.
1: Yeah, well, that test doesn't have a very high value, I'd say. It generates a lot of costs because you have false positives or false negatives, and that's a problem. So I'm understanding your question with regards to diagnostic, would it be a blood-based test or would it be an imaging test? I mean, this is something we've discussed on and off. The liquid biology themes, blood-based testing will be a little bit easier in the context of high-volume populations. If you have populations at very high risk and you can identify them well, I think imaging would probably be handy to be implemented, but the volume of imaging will never be as high as you could uh, offer with blood-based testing.
0: One more question, Elise I'm going to hand it back to you. So I wonder then maybe if that's where AI comes into play, right? If you've got decent AI and medical records so that you can increase the probability of a positive result, then it might be more efficient to go to a five-minute MRE if you had that available to you. Or if you didn't, to go to transient ellistography, then to go to blood-based, even if you're already drawing blood because the blood tests aren't predictive enough. Although the NIST four numbers that we saw with, I guess it was litmus, were actually pretty compelling if I remember correctly.
1: I agree, but we come back to the AI theme. I do see this as an enrichment and at-risk definition tool, so not as a diagnostic tool. It will never establish the diagnosis, but it will enrich the population or exclude certain patients. And the reason why Alina mentioned this should be done in medical records and primary care is because there the delta to the current situation is the biggest, because it's not done at all. And if you can use it uh, and you have a fair algorithm, you will identify, even if you leave behind a lot of patients, you can identify maybe Some of the more advanced ones, there's going to be an incremental gain. Whereas on other indications, the AI theme, augmenting the picture a little bit or augmenting the histology a little bit, I think the incremental gain from implementing that technology, at that level is less. And that's why in general, I agree with that, her statement there. And I'm supportive of this. And again, you know, we've made one of those algorithms that in parts at least has been published at this time.
2: I was just going to keep on the same theme, having listened to the conversation there. And Alina's right. But the AI, I was listening to the podcast that you did with Jeff Lazarus and Jean the other week, and this whole aspect of the coordination of care and multimorbidity, The potential for me for AI for liver disease is if should you diagnose somebody with cardiac condition you run a background liver screen for an AI because they've got a risk factor if they're diagnosed diabetic it goes on a pathway you don't have to do it before but once you hit that you may want to integrate it into the pathway this patient should now be checked for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease methotrexate use this patient should be screened for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease rather than screen everybody there is a opportunities in multimorbidity care to add it to a pathway that once that patient triggers a pathway this is an additional a fib4, an is4, should it be X, they get elastography or something similar. We can rule out and rule in, in a more specific way using the AI back reading of these patient groups. I think Jeff Lazarus was also saying something very similar in that conversation, which interested me. And you did that beautiful piece when you came on the podcast about your AI back reading, and it was AST that was actually the better indicator, I think, in your study, wasn't it, Sean?
1: Yeah. Well, Well, and that, again, relates to the disease stage. The more advanced they are, the more severe the fibrosis burden is, the higher AST or the ratio AST-ALT drops. The entire discussion around implementing these technologies and uh, spending money on expensive tests is at this point in, if I look into the German system, misses the target because we're not at the point where there is the perception that the disease is there and should be managed actively. And I think we've discussed this a number of times too. And now the AI can help you because it supports the physician, even if he's not thinking of the indication. And again, a strength that I see in the entire discussions around the differences in the medical systems and the referral systems in the NICE system, those referral pathways are very clearly defined and physicians are working according to them. They have to do it according to certain uh, triggers and values. Now, that limits the medical decision-making because you have to do certain things or you can't do certain things. But on the other hand, if it's implemented, it will work. And it's a little bit more freestyle in the German system where you can make that decision or not. And the referral pathways are not as strictly implemented. I think uh, there's optimal, there's, uh, you know, uh, medical care in both systems in their own way. But I don't See as strict referral pathways in Germany. I think a lot of patients are being left behind, even if they have abnormal tests and if they have a significant finding. And that's something that's worrisome to me. And I've been thinking about, you know, how could that be improved? AI is one thing, CME is another thing. And this is uh, Roger um, looping this back to you and your questions in the beginning. This is why I like to be on this podcast because I think the disease is out there and it needs to be addressed and it needs the attention. And if you ask me where should we go next, I think we got to reach out beyond the experts field and actually start talking to physicians that do see these patients but maybe do not have the same degree of expertise with regards to testing
0: and treating at this time.
1: And now back to Roger.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with the next piece of our year-end review, this time including interviews with Scott Friedman and Donna Cryer, among others. You'll want to hear it. Until then, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.